This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, episode three of Lessons in Chemistry, Living Dead Things is over, but we're just getting started. I'm Dr. Amanda, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague, somebody who I know well and never long enough. It is Dr. Melissa. Melissa, how are you? Hi, I'm actually going to have the cat do the podcast uh, here that's sitting next to me. If you happen to be uh, watching the video you here. Do you have a um, cat? Do you yeah, no, hear your cat's inner monologue throughout the duration of this podcast? I mean, she is very loud, so you might hear her at some point in this podcast. But um, yeah, I figure she's got it. She'll tell us her, her thoughts and feelings, and she can uh, let us know what she thought of the episode. Because she was, you know, she's sitting on the couch right next to me as I watched it, so... Talking Pets, Animal Point of View. We're going to get into it all. Um, But before we get started on all of that today, uh, please do make sure that you are subscribed to the Apple TV Plus Post Show Recaps podcast feed. And you can do that by searching for Post Show Recaps Apple TV wherever you get your podcasts. Um, It really helps us out to subscribe. And of course, leave us your ratings and reviews if you are so inclined. It uh, helps people find the show. Uh, You can also consider becoming a Post Show Recaps patron. Um, And the patron program is fantastic. You can find Melissa and me in the Discord, get access to the Discord, early access to podcasts, as well as patron exclusive podcasts. Uh, Merch is available at higher levels. It's really fantastic. And you can sign up for that at patreon.com slash recaps or postyourrecaps.com slash Patreon. And if you were in the Discord and you were continuing to have the lessons in chemistry conversation with us there, then you might have known that we were in for a talking dog this episode. Yeah, I, 
we didn't know, but the book readers were basically all behind spoiler text going, <laughs> just wait until they get to the talking dog. Uh, and do you know what? I feel like somebody could have given us a heads up. I think I, I, mm. I, I, I don't know. Maybe your cat should have told you, Melissa. Yeah. <laughs> Nora, why didn't you let me know? Uh, yeah, no, I, what, why, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just start off there. This is episode three of Lessons in Chemistry, Living Dead Things. Um, I thought that, you know, the plot advances in this episode in, you know, interesting ways. I enjoyed some of the choices they made. They made an extremely strong choice to have this episode told from the dog's point of view. When I saw this, I imagined, I was like, this must have been a chapter in the book that was written from the dog's point of view. Yeah, and it sounds I think like, we got that confirmation, yeah. Yes, and it sounds like, indeed, that's what it was. Um, but we straight up get dog point of view narration um, from the dog named 630. I believe the voice of this dog is BJ Novak from the yeah. office game. <laughs> Um, okay. So <laughs> it, it's clear that this is what, uh, the, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name now, the author of the novel. Um, it's clear that this was, you know, her choice in, uh, portraying this, that she wrote a, um, and I'm going to get this. This is Bonnie Garmus. So she wrote a chapter from 630's point of view, um, which I don't like inherently have a problem with. And I would be really curious to know how it reads in the novel. Um, and like the show makes a choice to be faithful to that artistic choice from the novel, which of course it could have made a departure from that and just not had this one part of the story be portrayed from the dog's point of view. I think that you could, you know, get all of the content here without having it come from the dog's point of view. But then it also makes a choice that like of having that first person narration, which I also think that the show could have made a departure from. Like you could have seen the dog. It could have like focused using the camera as featuring the dog's point of view. They could have highlighted the dog at various points in a way that I think like could have been an effective choice. We could have started off seeing the dog um, in that like military training, um, you know, context and like without having the dog narrate, but I was so distracted and annoyed by the fact that I was watching a talking dog in this episode that it really detracted from the episode for me. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think that, I didn't need the sappy, like, cliched commentary of, like, I have failed and I won't do it again. I'm here to protect my family, blah, blah, blah. Like, none of that writing was good enough to justify it coming from the dog. And I just, I agree with you that I think that, like, we could have got an emotional beat. I, you know, I thought the the emotional stuff of, like, the only part of it that I somewhat connected to was when the dog's like she hasn't been able to look at me she hasn't touched me mm -hmm. in days and it was like gosh like that's got to be so hard to like look at your dog and associate him with the reason why like he was out on the run and, and you know whatever it's not that it was his fault certainly by any stretch but just that 
it's an association now for her. And so I get that, that that is really hard. But I agree that you could have like using camera shots and all of the kind of visual medium that we often say is like really helpful when you get to have an adaptation from a book to a show, all of these things that you can do that you Mm -hmm. can't do in a book. And so it's really, yeah, I agree that they could have got the idea of it without actually doing it. And then, yeah, I just, I agree. Like this is supposed to be some big emotional chapter and it was in some moments. Yeah. I think that it, I think that it ends up being distracting. Like I agree with you that there is something like powerful and compelling about imagining the emotional world of this animal and then imagining the emotional world of Elizabeth who now like sees this animal as a reminder of her loss. Right. And like how she ends up projecting her feelings of grief and like, and and her own probably feelings of self blame onto the dog. Like I can see how that could be interesting and powerful, but because animals don't speak and because if they did speak, they would not be like eloquent writers <laughs> putting actual words instead of just focusing on that perspective and that emotion, I think ends up cheapening what could have been more powerful. And it does end up being like very goofy and cliched. Um, I did a little bit of research on Bonnie Garmus and her decision to include the dog point of view in the novel. She herself has a dog named 99. So obviously there's like some connection there between a dog named 630 and a dog named 99. She um, has an affinity for rescue dogs and she often takes rescue dogs into her home. Um, So it's like, you know, it's clear that like, and that, and that's like very, very wonderful. And um, noble. She has a dog named Friday. So she like has this pension for these kind of unusual names uh, for dogs. And that clearly was part of the inspiration here. Um, I don't know. It didn't work for me. It's like if they made this, if this was, this show like has moments, I think of comedy and the way that Brie Larson plays Elizabeth can sometimes be kind of very deadpan funny. And this like felt tonally like mismatched to me. Like I didn't know if there were points where it was supposed to be kind of funny. It was, it was a weird choice. I didn't like it. I hope we're done with it. I thought it was really corny. I was embarrassed for BJ Novak for doing this voice. (laughs) Like the whole thing, the whole thing was wild. I couldn't believe it. Like I was in disbelief the whole time I was watching this episode. Um, and I just, I needed to get all of that off my chest. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, if, you know, people might not know, I love dogs, big dog person, always had dogs my whole life growing up. Um, it's not the fact that it was a dog or by any stretch, but I agree. It was such a tonal shift from what this show has been. And like, yeah, if you're going to tell an entire story from a dog's perspective, like I'm a big homeward bound girly Mm -hmm. like you can absolutely (laughs) do that and i'm down for it but the fact that most of the rest of this show as far as we know is not like this just makes it such a gimmick that i i it felt like it was as you were saying detracting from the otherwise like really emotional episode that we were going to be watching 
Um, the other issue I have, just like right off the top, since when are you putting a go- golden doodle in like military training? Yeah. Uh, this is not the breed <laughs> that you do. And I get that like in the book, I think 630 is supposed to be just like a random mixed rescue mm-hmm. dog. Um, but like that dog is a golden doodle. I don't know what to tell you. And so like, uh, I don't know. It it seems a bit wild to me that they were like, oh yeah, I, I, I had this like fearful, ex- like the dog could either different breed of dog or the dog could have had a like fearful upbringing from just like being yeah. a stray dog. Right. Like, I don't know. That felt so, so much of this felt so over the top that I just, yeah. Like, yeah. And it felt, second, it felt like emotionally manipulative in a way that it didn't have to be. And like, again, like I think that they could have achieved everything that they wanted to achieve highlighting the dog's point of view without the voiceover, like do everything Mm -hmm. the same without the voiceover. Like let us spend the afternoon in the apartment with the dog, all of that. Let us see the dog's rescue and all of that. Um, Just take away the voiceover and it would have, I think it would have been a lot better. Um, But you have an actor actor like Brie Larson, like Brie Larson can communicate to you the things that the dog Mm -hmm. is saying in her acting, right? She can act distance from this dog. She can act, you know, we can get the dog barking and like you, we can get it without you needing to give we us can these get like it. ultra yes. cliche lines. Absolutely. Yes. And like, if we missed a tiny bit of it, I'm okay with missing <laughs> a cliche bit of it. Like, I, I, I don't know. It maybe I'm, I'm very down for the idea that this works in the book and that the whole idea is potentially like distancing the reader from Zot's emotional experience as she has distanced mm-hmm. herself from her emotional experience. Like I could see that being the reason for this choice is that like she isn't in touch with her emotions and now we're not even in touch right. with her anymore. We now have a different narrator of this story. Mm-hmm. So I am da- I okay. If that's the thing though, either the writing has to be better or we do it differently. Like this didn't do that for me. And I, if, if that was the intention, this is my most generous read that I can give for this situation and book readers, let us know if it worked better in the book, because maybe it does. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of down for that, but I just don't think Brie Larson needed it. Like, I think I got all of that emotion from her without needing this gimmick on top. Yeah. And, and like, you know, with adaptations, like, you know, let books do what books can do and let a television show do what a television show can do. And like, because we have visuals, because we have music, because we have these other narrative tools, we don't need everything to be dialogue. We don't need the dog to talk. (laughs) Period. Exclamation (laughs) point. We don't need the dog to talk. We don't need to. Um, (laughs) Um, but with that, let's get into our sweet 630s origin story where I was just like, it's, I write, it's narrated from the dog's point of view. I kind of didn't believe it. I had to, I kept on thinking it was going to go away and it didn't, but I'm, I, I will, I will get over it. So we can do a recap of this episode. I think I can't promise, but I might, I might get over <laughs> it. Um, so, you know, we see 630s origin is a military dog he says i was a coward and i hated myself for it like oh my god come on right um and eventually 6 30 escapes uh under the fence and this is 
brings us to this scene, which we've already seen from Elizabeth's point of view. And now we're going to see it from 630's point of view um, where he's in the trash can and she brings him in. He feels safe. He can protect her. That was his purpose. Yeah. I mean, again, I would have loved seeing this, you know, kind of the lead up to this episode or to this moment from the dog's point of view. Maybe the dog's like wandering, kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, gets chased away from some yards or something and then like ends up at, you know, her house. Like I could see that being a really lovely moment. I didn't mm -hmm. need it said out loud. Like I understand. I I I I can I understand analogy. I understand yeah. metaphor. Like give it felt it's very children's programming. Yeah. It's like it's like <laughs> it's very children's programming. All of the everything that the dog says here. Um, but then um, you know, we we um we go from that to the scene again that we've seen where Evans is going to get hit by the bus on the run. Um, and, you know, in that moment, everything 630 had ever thought about himself, every worst fear came true. And then we go to the opening credits. Um, finally, we go Again, to the a tonal shift to the opening the credits. Shift. Like, it's so wild. Also, like, I think I wrote this in high school, Amanda. Like, I think I, <laughs> I, I, I think I have this in like a creative writing poetry assignment mm -hmm. of like, you know, every worst thing I've ever thought about myself came true the day that I <laughs> let down this person that I love. Like, yeah, I just I have to believe that the writers on this show and the writer of this book are better than this. I'm not even like a very critical person when yeah. it comes to writing. I'm I like I don't know. It does make anyway. me want to. It does make me want to see this chapter in the book. And like I'll go back now that I've seen through here and look at all of the spoiler tagged conversation in the Discord to see what's already been said about this. Um, but it does like make me really curious about how effective this is in the book. Because like the actual dialogue, the actual narration that's given to the dog like is very simple and trite, which is like, okay, because I think that like dogs have, you know, I mean, no offense, like no insult to dogs, like they're... <laughs> Again, pro dog podcast. Pro dog podcast. Like they're wonderful, but it's like they do have like goldfish brains and they wouldn't like be, they wouldn't narrate something the way a human would. Like it would be much more emotional and impressionistic and like not linguistically sophisticated because they're dogs. But I would be curious to see how this plays in, in the book. Um, if it if it does like if it does come off, I think like a little bit more consistent with the tone of the rest of the story. Um, in Elizabeth's I just want house, to have better yeah. self esteem. Sorry, I keep like not letting you move on from this scene. But no, like, that's okay. Just, we can just stay I here want... the whole time, Melissa. We can. I just like don't think that dogs are this down on themselves, right? I think most dogs think that they're like pretty good pups. They're pretty good boys. Right. I mean, uh, I, 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 to, to, to talk about like sense of self from a dog's point of view, I think it would be pretty different from like a human sense of self because of like mm -hmm. different long-term memory capacity and autobiographical <laughs> memory. I don't know. Like, I don't think they would be like, this reminds me of when I was in the military. And I didn't feel like I just wouldn't be like that. 
Yeah. Um, but but you know, but this is what this is what six thirty is thinking. This is what, and I know that because he tells me it in his human voice. <laughs> um, Sorry, you can go on now. <laughs> We're moving on. Um, we see Elizabeth like in the immediate aftermath, like again, like this is, and I think that this is all really effective because we're getting this still from 630's point of view, but we're seeing Elizabeth kind of stunned and speechless with the police coming and telling her what happened. We see her go through the process of selecting a coffin, planning the funeral arrangements. Um, we see her ignoring the phone. So all of this, I think, really works because it's like visual storytelling where we're seeing Elizabeth and she's very kind of um, disconnected from everything, sort of depersonalized. And, um, and you know, because 630 is always with her, we're seeing it from his point of view. Um, it was all great because there was no talking dog. Because there was no talking dog. Um, we also see like Harriet with her family at church the, with the kids asking where Dr. Evans is now. Um, you know, they talk about his body and his soul. Harriet says that his soul is in heaven. Um, and we see how much that this is also like weighing really heavily on Harriet because she sort of steps away and goes outside to cry after being strong for her children. Interestingly, the dog was not in church, so I don't know how we even see this because we're hearing this from the dog's <laughs> point of view. Um, yeah. No, um, no we dogs see in church, apparently. No dogs in church. No. Um, we go to the funeral and we see the burial. Um, Elizabeth is there with 630. She is in the front two rows that are reserved for family, but she's alone. Um, and we know already from Calvin himself that he doesn't have any living family. Uh, Harriet is also there attending the funeral, but she's sitting far in the back. A reporter approaches Elizabeth and says that he's writing a story about Calvin. He asks her, if she knew him well, she says, I didn't know him long. I didn't know him long enough. Um, we find out that the reports that he's getting so far are not painting a very flattering picture. Somebody said he had his moments. Somebody else said he was a real jerk. Um, you know, this this like reporter is just like extremely rude and um, like very inappropriate. He tells her she shouldn't have dogs. Um He's like, he's just not, he, you know, he's not being very, like, delicate given the situation that yeah, he's in. The audacity of this man at a funeral to approach the person sitting in the front row. Like, first of all, nobody else sitting there, even if she's not mm -hmm. family. Like, who's she hurting by sitting in the front right. row of this thing? Fine. Uh, and then, yeah, the whole, like, hey, you want to give me the scoop on this guy? Because, you know, other people say he's a real jerk uh, as you're sitting here. <laughs> clearly mourning him yeah and like uh also get your dog out of this like open outdoor space that right i i yeah this man uh no he he gets no credit for the stuff he does later on in the episode because this is no, yeah. too much yeah yeah no, this is too much yeah i guess that he does have a little bit of a redemption in this in this uh episode but not off to a great start um we get more of you know elizabeth's gonna get up and leave eventually she she's unable to stay there uh for the duration of the funeral um we get more of 630's point of view he wants a walk she didn't speak to 
him for days. She didn't touch him. She barely looks at him. Um, you know, 630 feels like uh, the death of Calvin is his fault. Um, and over time, she's not going to, she was hoping that she would forget about it, but she doesn't. Um, so, you know, this is Elizabeth's state. She eventually, she does want to come back to work and she's eager to get back to work. She goes to the Hastings lab and the secretaries are gossiping. They can't believe she's here. The body's still warm. You hear their gossip. Um, she go, goes to the lab really eager to pick up her work where she left off and it's been completely cleaned out. Um, she wants to know where Calvin's things are. We learned that everything went down to storage and all of that work belongs to Hastings. Um, Melissa, like what is like, so in terms of intellectual property and mm. working for a place like Hastings or working for a university, um, I know that in industry, like you do pretty much sign away your intellectual property to your employer. Um, and so I was just wanted us to, to speak to a little bit to whether this is unusual or whether this is something that would be pretty standard. Yeah, I think this gets back to this whole kind of question we had about what Hastings is, if mm -hmm. it's like a research institution as part of uh, a college or if it's somehow like a privately funded research lab um, mm -hmm. that is still somehow applying for this grant, um, which isn't like incredibly unheard of so mm -hmm. that is sort of my guess here and so in this case yeah the idea that Hastings now like is ownership of that because even I had it in academia certainly as um when I was working in like other people's labs right I, you know I was never the mm -hmm. PI myself mm -hmm. the idea was like yeah you leave your lab notebooks behind when you finish your time in the lab so that, you know, people can continue on that work and whatever. And that work continues mm -hmm. um, to be a part of that lab rather than something that you take home forever. So um, that part didn't like surprise me too much, but I don't know if you had different thoughts there. Yeah, no, I think that this would be like completely expected if you're working for any kind of industry that you don't like. And I remember like there've been places, there were places that I worked um, more in like research and development. I worked for, you know, tell, I think it was Telcordia Technologies. It was formerly Bell Labs. And I think it became something else. But um, when I start, I did that like a high school and college internships there. And on the first day they buy your intellectual property for a dollar. Like everybody gets a dollar, <laughs> like a literal, like single dollar paper money and you sign something and then they own every, anything that you do that you create while you're there. Um, Dr. Evan in, in Canada, we call that loony for your thoughts, a loony for your thoughts. Um, that's so much more fun than what it, than what it felt like. Um, <laughs> Doc, I don't know if like Dr. Evans, if Calvin as PI, like if he if he transferred mm -hmm. institutions, I imagine he would have been able to take his work with him, I think, you know, like, like at least yeah. in academia, you often can do that. But Elizabeth, like as a lab technician, technically, it makes sense that she would not have any ownership over that work, which is part of like what was so important about, you know, those conversations she was having with Calvin about like, you know, with, if I don't stand on my two feet, 
I don't have anything. And it's like very true that like, and I think that this was such a powerful episode talking dog notwithstanding because we had speculated about just how beholden Elizabeth was to Calvin's like belief in her and his goodwill and that that was not something that had any currency or would be recognized outside of his love for her and that like we see when she loses him all of a sudden how her status falls and how little leverage she actually has even though it is her intellectual work and it is something that she contributed to. Yeah, absolutely. It was not at all the way I thought she was going to lose access to all of that. Mm. I had uh, certainly more cynical thoughts around uh, Calvin and what he might do. But uh, yeah, dying was not what I expected him to do. Yeah. So, um, But yeah, I, I think it's, um, it all tracks for me that she has lost access to this and that Hastings is going to try to uh, continue on. But I did find it quite funny that they're like clearly trying to do it without her. And yeah, you know, uh, clearly that's not going to go over quite so well because they're mm-hmm. seem they're, they seem fairly dumb, incompetent. Dumb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so she, you know, is like n- the lab is gone. She can't get back in it. She can't get access to the work. She asks Fran if there's any empty lab space she can use. Um, she can't get at like she's she can't have his personal items, his records, all of that. They have to keep those things in case there's a living relative who comes for them. Um, Fran does take some pity on Elizabeth here and she says that she's going to like find her some work to continue at Hastings, but she can't bring the dog. So um, again, another great injury to 630. Who's going to have to stay home alone, um, watching cartoons and eating kibble from a Rube Goldberg contraption. Yeah, this was quite clever. I like the whole automatic uh, timer (laughs) thing. I uh, have certainly considered such things for uh, Uh cats. Yeah. yeah, I think you can't you buy like time release yeah. food dispenser. Yeah, you can just buy now. this now. Yeah. You don't have to yeah. jerry rig it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, you know, at Hastings, Elizabeth does get a job and she's taking like it looks like her job is like taking dictation from like a senile doddering old man who somehow still has uh, like emeritus status here at Hastings Lab, but really just spends his time like dictating complaints to the crossword editor of newspapers. Yeah, I honestly, this is what happens, I think, when you give tenured professors, you know, <laughs> the longest of leashes and don't, you know, make them oh, retire. Please ever. let it be me. I'm ready. I'm ready for that era. <laughs> yeah. Just give me somebody that I can sit across from and like reminisce about different cafeteria offerings. I'm so there. Um, (laughs) So um, at the Hastings lab, I think that, oh, who is this actor? I got to look this up. The, the, The guy who plays like the director or the chairman of the board. Oh, yeah. The like Weasley guy. Yeah, no, it's actually not. It's not the chairman of the board. Let me, I'm going to get the IMDB up so I can figure out who this is. Um, 
It is Bo Bridges, of course. Bo Bridges, who was like lurking behind in the funeral, is now showing up to talk to Donati about how uh, Hastings is uh, going to lose the Remsen funding. Um, because now that they no longer have Evans and his brilliance, you know, then, you know, there is there, they won't be able to continue to receive this research funding. Um, but Donati tells him that Evans was actually a good friend of his and a lab mate, and they had been working together on the project that they were going to apply for the funding for, and he would like to continue that work. Um, so this is like a clear misrepresentation, obviously, Donati is just trying to trick this, um, benefactor into, um, you know, that like, he's actually going to be able to carry out this groundbreaking work. Um, and all of a sudden it does become important to Donati that the work that Zot and Evans had started is going to be continued. So, um, he reaches out to another young chemist, and um, I finally got his name down later in the episode um, somewhere. I'm not finding it right now, but um, this is somebody who was sort of friendly with Alfred, you've got Alfred. Later, yeah. That's his name, Alfred. Thank you. Um, so Alfred is going to be enlisted by Donati to sort of continue on with this work. Um, of course, they don't even think of involving Elizabeth, who obviously knows exactly what's going on and would be the natural person to continue on because Donati is a cartoon villain, Melissa. Yeah. Uh, well, I thought it was very funny that like earlier he gets told off basically like you're a middleman, you're replaceable, mm -hmm. like we need the chemist, we don't actually need you, anyone can mm -hmm. do your job. Uh, and so his response is like, okay, I'm gonna do chemistry then. And it's, uh, but yeah, and of course, yeah, there's, you know, we're gonna see it later on in the episode as well. There's like zero good to this guy. And so yeah, he yeah. doesn't clearly have any consideration for Elizabeth or her capabilities at all. And I think mm -hmm. the, it, I think it's probably because he's not a chemist, right? Like I think some I of think the other chemists is, at I, least. I, I thought he was a chemist. Like I imagined that he was like, because they call him Dr. Donati. So I, he has his PhD. Um, yeah. I imagine that he was like somebody, and this is like how academia works is like you know people get like move up through administration administrative roles like right like you can um become the chair of you you know somebody from the department becomes the chair of the department and then the chair of the department over time becomes like a provost or provost becomes a dean or a dean becomes a president like these things happen and like you know i've seen people's academic careers go this way and as you take on administrative responsibilities you have less and less time to do your science. Some people who are really brilliant scientists will become promoted through administration. Um, not everybody is. Like, Donati is clearly, like, a mediocre scientist. Like, it seems like a lot of the scientists at Hastings are really, like, when um, Elizabeth was in that other lab um, under Dr. Price, like, you know, it, people weren't very impressive. It seemed like Evans was really... Uh, a unique shining star, but I imagine that Donati is a chemist, like not a very distinguished one, but who somehow managed to do well enough that he started to move up through the administrative ranks and has, you know, kind of geared his career towards that. 
Totally. Yeah. And yeah, you're probably right. I think I was just thinking in terms of the like having worked in the lab with Elizabeth, at least the mm -hmm. other chemists have seen her like answer their questions and know how to do all of this. So they've at least she has, I think, sort of worn them down to have a tiny bit of respect for her mm -hmm. like chemistry know how at the very least, even if they don't respect her as a person or, you know, worthy of any sort of autonomy or career right. advancement or any of the things that we, uh, you know, uh, might uh, allow women to have at some point. But uh, for now, at least, yeah, yeah he's not he's not even going to do any of that. And, you know, uh, he's going to turn to Brace's face instead. And, and yeah, he, uh, uh, tries to figure this out, even though he clearly also, I think, chose this guy not because he was a great chemist, but because he could. No boss him around and that he would probably give in to what he wanted. Right. Right. And Donati is like particularly blind to Elizabeth's merit because he's also like just repulsively sexist. Um, and Alfred at least is like going to say, well, shouldn't you ask Zot to do it? Like it is her work. And Donati basically threatens him. If you're not up for the task, I'll find someone else. So they're going to embark on trying to replicate this work. Um, in the meantime, we see that Elizabeth is back at home and has baked a pie. She initially sets the table for two, which is like very sad. Then she clears away the setting for Calvin and sort of after kind of like meticulously making this very nice table setting, she kind of um, sloppily just scoops up a spoonful of pie, but tastes it and immediately runs to the sink to spit it out. Um, then we see her wake up in the night sick to her stomach. I immediately knew that this was like television, like a uh, speak for she's pregnant. Um, yeah. But we see it always that she takes, you know, <laughs> the only reason that women ever throw up is because they're pregnant. Um, yeah. It's also the only way they ever find out they're pregnant is mm -hmm. because nobody bothers to nobody as meticulous as Zot ever, you know, keeps keeps track, uh, you know. Well, we see her, through. yeah, we see her, like, log of her menstrual cycle, and we realize that she had just written, like, like that she missed her January period or something, and then, like, it's like, of course, of course she, like, she would have already known. She wouldn't have needed to do this. But anyway, so Elizabeth is pregnant and um or she thinks she might be pregnant um so we see that she like looks up in this um periodical determining pregnancy status and then we go to the series of scenes where she comes into a lab that's filled with frogs she uh you know she threw some kind of white lie ends up obtaining a couple of frogs we see she takes them ha has them in separate tanks, one that says experimental, one that says control. And I looked this up, Melissa. Mm -hmm. This frog test is a pregnancy testing method relying on two frogs to determine pregnancy status, uh, provided that immunological pregnancy tests were not yet developed before the 1960s. So at this time, there would not have been the drugstore pregnancy test available to Elizabeth, but um, women could use uh, different animals for urine-based pregnancy tests ranging from frogs to mice. Um, and what they would 
do is what she does is she like injects urine into one of the frogs and not the other frog. Like I'm trying to see the hodge. So the hodgepin test procedure consisted of injecting a sample of women's urine into the skin on the back of a frog, specifically into the dorsal lymph sac. Around 12 hours later, results could be seen. If the woman was pregnant, then the frog would be ovulating and a small cluster of eggs could be seen at the rear end of the frog. Interestingly, the same could be observed in the male species. Okay, blah, blah, blah. This mechanism is due to the pituitary hormone, human chorionic go gonadotropin, which is present only in a pregnant woman's urine. The woman, If the woman is not pregnant, no sperm or egg would be produced from the male or female frog, respectively. So yeah, Elizabeth does this frog pregnancy test. So you're telling me this isn't how you found out you were pregnant with your, <laughs> your kids, Amanda? This wasn't, this isn't how every scientist mice. finds out. I used <laughs> mice. I didn't use frogs. Um, yeah. No, this I is actually, wild. There was so much about this that I, that I love. First of all, like having worked, my undergrad labs were sort of, I got the sense of the same kind of thing where it's like, physics labs and then down the hallway are the chemistry labs and then just down the hallway are the biology labs mm -hmm. and I remember at one point working in the biology lab when like alarms were going off down the hallway and I was like looking around at the grad students I was working with being like should we leave like and they're like oh no it's like chemistry down the hall it's fine we don't have to and I was like isn't that worse isn't that worse <laughs> if there's alarms going off in the chemistry labs like that seems if there's alarms going off in the biology labs like Maybe not so bad, but like yeah. in the chemistry yeah, labs, yeah. I think you want to get out of there. So, uh, yeah, I loved this that she just like popped over to biology, picked up a couple frogs, and mm -hmm. like did this experiment. And the the frog guy being like, nobody tells me anything. I'm just here hanging with <laughs> I the just frogs. Sit, I just sit down here in the basement with the frogs. Yeah, for that somebody. felt so <laughs> accurate to like the bio guy uh, who's just his job is to like study frogs and so he doesn't yeah. get the same clout that the you know everybody else mm. gets so they just leave him alone and then you know come when they need something i thought it was very funny yeah yeah no this was very neat this was a very fun for uh this was like a very fun little like window into um like first of all it's like very fitting with elizabeth's character of like you know her being like the methodical scientist who's going to you know instead of going to a doctor or waiting another month to see what happens like she's going to go and do this test and also like it was it was really neat to get this window into the world of like the 1950s when you didn't have drugstore pregnancy tests available and all of that at your disposal and just how like resourceful she is um so that was cool um and then we get um then we get like but okay after the pregnancy test she um she used the timer that she uses to determine like the period of time where she checks the results and the frogs is a is a it's a stopwatch that has like a broken face and i thought this must be evans's stopwatch from the yeah. um from the accident um when the watch goes off and she gets the result the dog says i knew the baby was coming before she did Okay. Um, but her reaction, I thought, like, was really powerful. She takes a sledgehammer and she, like, breaks the watch. 
first. Does she break the mm-hmm. watch or does she just break? The, and then, oh we, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, she breaks the watch. And then we see that she starts taking the sledgehammer to completely obliterating the countertop. Um, Harriet comes to the door and is like concerned about what is going on with the sound she hears. And she tells Harriet, I'm building an industrial grade chemical lab. Um, This exchange, I thought, like, I like, I really like these two characters together. And I think I'm glad that like, I think we're going to get to see them develop a relationship um, around the loss of Calvin, at least initially. Um, and Harriet is bringing, is coming to, to tell her about this LA times article and just how, you know, horribly it portrays Calvin. Um, and she wants to go and fix it. She wants to file an affidavit. Um, Elizabeth at this point doesn't even like know who she is, um, who Harriet is. They introduce one another they introduce themselves to each other and uh elizabeth just says i'm sorry i'm not myself lately yeah this was there was a part of me that was nervous that like these two got so like googly each other that like calvin didn't even mention like oh yeah this is my neighbor who i like whose kids i take care of sometimes right these people in my life like i was like did you i don't know i i i wanted her to any sort of acknowledgement that she'd like ever heard Harriet's name mentioned right. before, but I get it. She's not herself. So it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also like, yeah. I mean, so it is like, I, 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 it made me wonder, you know, also just how long their courtship was, even though like, mm-hmm. it's clear that they got very close. Like the fact that she doesn't know Harriet at all, she had just sort of, I guess, recently moved in. I think it also sort of speaks to how, like, they were in this honeymoon phase where they were so involved with each other that mm-hmm. they were, like, a little bit oblivious to the rest of the world. But there is something sad, I think, both about, like, there, there is something sad, especially given that, like, Calvin did let Harriet down, that, like, he wouldn't have shared that he had this other important relationship in his life, mm-hmm. like, that they wouldn't be aware of each other, but like it's clear that like they are going to, you know, be able to eventually bond over it. Elizabeth's also strange and not particularly social. So I think that it can kind of make sense. But yeah, it would have been like nice. It would have been nice for him to like honor both of these women in his li- life more by like acknowledging <laughs> their existence to other people. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I guess he's the guy that like nobody comes to his funeral and the people who do say mean things about him. So maybe you can chalk it up to that. Um, so so Harriet does go to the LA Times and um, she goes and complains about the Evans piece. What you wrote was inaccurate. It was liable and it was wrong. The man was as and she reads some like sections. The man was as brilliant as he was boring, but she says that he was the warmest person she knew. If his mind was great, his heart was greater. Um, and you know, he, like he's obviously not going to change the article. Um, controversy spices up papers, but he says, you know, if you have if you have any other good stories, like let me know. Um, and this, you know, makes a light bulb go off in in Harriet's head. Yeah, this guy sucks. And if I was Harriet, I don't know. Like, obviously, 
beggars can't be choosers. Harriet's just looking for help with this, Mm -hmm. getting some media attention on it. She figures, hey, you want controversy? I've got some controversy for you. But I wouldn't trust this man to, like, tell her story well either. Like, I, I would be really nervous and am nervous about how he will talk about this event as it unfolds and who he will need to kind of acquiesce to in order to keep his job and like what he's willing to do how far he's willing to stick his neck out to write this story in a fair way to Harriet like I wouldn't bet on that and we sort of get the story at the end seeming like you know he did do that and did talk about her doing well at the meeting but if we see this man again like I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop I think here Yeah, it's a really good point. And I hadn't initially thought about this, but I'm going to give you credit for pointing this out because like, I do think what we see in the story so far is how vulnerable women are and how relying, how they need to rely on men in this world to get their voices heard, to like have the impact that they want to have. But in that reliance, they are extremely, you know, vulnerable and they can be, you know, just as, just as easily sold out. So I would not be surprised. I mean, and it will be very disappointing if it goes here though if that's what we see from Harriet's storyline that like whenever this reporter like doesn't find her to be useful to him anymore he ends up selling her out and it's not a good outcome for her and maybe you know we'll see like Elizabeth and Harriet be the ones that kind of come together and help each other out but I think that that's that that's a really good prediction on your part um if the Hastings lab we see Alfred and Donati trying to um, work out, uh, trying to work out what Elizabeth and Calvin had been doing, trying to replicate their work and trying to move forward. And I'm going to here highlight a message that I got from the official Lessons in Chemistry chemistry correspondent, the great Bill the Chemist, at Bill the Chemist on Twitter. He's on the job market right now. And he (laughs) said that um, he said that it's actually more of a knock on Zot and uh, Evans for keeping bad lab notebooks, which isn't actually likely because we see that Zot is incredibly methodical and likely would have had incredibly detailed and organized lab notebooks. So he was saying that um, it just doesn't make sense that if you or 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 that like if if you really did your experiments and did your science and documented responsibly, then even these two um, even these two bozos should have been able to follow the lab notebook and replicate the experiments. Yeah, I uh, I was just looking. The cupboard above my desk is where I have stacks. Of lab notebooks from wow. my like, years in chemistry lab, or not in chemistry labs, in uh, other labs, some of which I, you know, like I said, I had to leave behind in the labs that I was in. Um, but yeah, it is true that like the whole idea of a chemistry no- or, or a lab notebook in general is that you should be able to hand that to somebody else and they could completely replicate your work, right? Replication being a really key part of mm-hmm. science, right? One person finding one thing one time is not science. Uh, a, a 
people being able to replicate it, you being able to replicate it later on. Um, there's a big kind of issue with this sometimes in mm-hmm. uh, psychology research yes. around people struggling yes. to replicate the work of other people. And It turns uh, out that a lot of the biggest, most important, most fundamental experiments in all of psychology have been um, not have not been replicated. They call it this replication crisis. I was actually I was just reading about it. I was reading about the the famous Baumeister experiments about willpower that there's like, you know, there's so many of these really foundational psychology experiments that have failed to replicate. But that's, uh, you know, there's and there's been a lot of discussion about that and what are some of the different factors that cause that. It's really, really very interesting. Um, But at least in basic science, right, like there's a higher, uh, you know, and part of this is, you know, we don't tend to explicate our methods as precisely as some of the basic sciences do. And also there's ways that we don't have ever have as much control over mm-hmm. things because of individual differences between people and between settings and all of these unobserved confounders that influence human behavior in ways that, you know, we have a better idea of what confounders and what things to control for in um, basic science than we do in psychological science where like little things like the color of the room or the temperature or a person's whole of their experiences before they even entered your lab can all influence the results of your experiment. Um, But anyway, um, all of that's to say that replication is really one of the foundations of science because it's not a finding if you can't replicate it. Yeah, I mean, I I ranted about this on the Sweet Tooth podcast already. Oh. Uh, if anybody happened to have listened to that, because again, they were trying to do some science and they did it one time and they were all bragging about it. And then sure enough, couldn't replicate it. And it was a problem. And I called it because I was like, you don't just do it one time and assume mm-hmm. that it's right because false positives can happen. False negatives can happen. Uh, you got to you got to replicate your work. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I agree with Bill's notes that like it's a bit unbelievable to me that Zot wouldn't take such detailed notes that somebody mm-hmm. couldn't replicate it. I'm sort of assuming that this is a bit of an indictment on these two trying to replicate it that they don't yeah. really understand what was going on. And so someone who maybe understood the material could look at this and easily replicate it. And they just, you know, are missing some of the basic knowledge that is required to yeah. understand what's happening here. Yeah, these guys are big, dumb dummies. And I think that that's <laughs> what the show is trying to get across. And I'm here for that because I'm mad at them. Yeah. Um, speaking They're of big, dumb, jerks. yeah, speaking of big, dumb dummies being jerks, Harriet goes back to city council to lobby about the freeway again. Um, and she has another one of her like really great rousing speeches. She asks, like, Do you adhere to the U.S. Constitution? Great, because I adhere to the U.S. Constitution too. And then she mentions the 14th Amendment, which guarantees all people equal protection under the law. Um, Again, she looks behind her to see if the person she invited is going to show up. And this time, the L.A. Times reporter does show up. Unlike Calvin, she's very pleased and he's going to cover the hearing and publish about it. So that's good news. Temporary win for Harriet. Um. In the meantime, you know, Elizabeth has been re- working on refitting 
the kitchen into a lab. There's a lot of great like montages of her like pounding pork chops and like demo, demo demolishing countertops and doing all of this crazy work. Um, she's like extremely intense and focused. And again, this is from the point of view of a dog for some reason. Yeah. Um, she's doing the rowing thing too. Which, she's doing row. Uh, she's training yeah. and rowing. Um, and she's got this like absolute ferocity to her, which is bordering on terrifying. Um, Alfred comes to the door and he's there to bring Calvin's personal items to Elizabeth, but he lies and tells her that the research wasn't there. Um, you know, it might have been misplaced or something. Um, but we know that he's actually using it with Donati to try to uh, kind of usurp the work from Elizabeth. Um, after he leaves, she opens the box and she finds the tennis ball that Calvin used to throw to 630. Um, and he also she also sees that there is a note for Harriet on one of the records, an apology for missing the hearing. Um, so she brings the note over to Harriet's house. Harriet invites her in. They listen to jazz records again. Um, they talk about their memories of Calvin. It's like very sweet. Um, we find out that Harriet and Calvin bonded over their love of jazz. They both do impressions of what a bad dancer he is. It's like a rare moment of like Elizabeth actually like seeming to let down her like rough exterior and actually enjoy herself a little bit. Um, Harriet eventually asks her, why are you building an industrial grade lab? And she says she needs to finish her research. She's a ticking time bomb, which Harriet instantly understands to mean that she's pregnant. Um, Elizabeth breaks down and says that she can't, doesn't think that she can do it to which Harriet says, no one can do it, but then you expand. You think you can't do it, but you do it anyway. That's being a mother. Um, this like might sound a little bit like Hallmark card e, but I did find this sort of touching and something that feels really true. And it's not just true of like becoming a parent, which is which really is something that is like it's unfathomable. Like if you like it's it's I remember like you know not being able to imagine like what it would be like to have a kid and seeming like I couldn't have possibly done the things that I ended up doing to like keep a kid alive. And then when I had my second, like being like, I can't imagine doing this with two. And then, you know, and it, it there is like this way that you kind of rise to the occasion and expand. And I think that that's true of like lots of big endeavors. It's true of like running a marathon or finishing a graduate program or like lots of the, you know, making a big move, like lots of things. But I thought that there was like something very sweet about this advice from Harriet to um, Elizabeth. And I also thought that it felt like very poignant. Yeah. I really liked it too. I, I really, you know, do you know what? The dog's not in the scene. So I really liked it. Um, and, but I, I thought that they're connecting over this, this moment of like them kind of having this bit of a laugh, but clearly bonding over this shared grief that they have as well. I thought was very lovely. Um, and I thought this like description of motherhood and this moment of Harriet being like the only person that Elizabeth can really talk to about this was really lovely. And especially because when she talks about this expansion, 
the other thing that it made me talk of was the way people talk about grief and the idea mm, that like yeah. over time grief doesn't get smaller you just grow around it is kind of how yeah. I think it's been put a lot of the time and so she's sort of expanding in multiple ways right now and that is mm. um yeah that that's going on for her in both this uh in in both her like literal expansion mm -hmm. but also her capacity to take on motherhood and and handle this grief that she's experiencing yeah yeah um and that's where we get like after that we get that montage that we mentioned of the rowing the working in the lab the cooking like day after day we see the time passing um and we see that like you know her 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 belly is starting to grow like we see that the pregnancy is advancing um we get to see her at work where she's bent over the bathroom sink in the hastings lab and fran walks in noticing that her skirt has been like fastened with a safety pin because she can no longer close it so we get this sense like this is the show telling us that people are starting to notice that she's pregnant um she goes to the OBGYN and is examined uh, by the doctor here. Um, and he seems to know Calvin. He apologizes to Elizabeth for her loss. He and Calvin rode together. Um, she says that she's been erging. I guess that's like the stationary rower. I didn't know that term. Yeah, neither did I. I just assumed it was sort of related to ergonomics in some way, mm. but I didn't know... Uh, yeah, I just know this is like a rowing machine, but I assume, yeah, I assume it's real. We just don't know. Right. Right. Um, so that's, um, so, you know, and he, I, I thought he was going to like give her this real, like old school advice that she like basically needs to be like bedridden until she has a baby. But like, thankfully mm -hmm. he like, he didn't do that. And he seemed to be supportive um this actor i'm looking him up now i know him as like he's in a lot of things i know him as sean mm -hmm. from the good place where he's like yeah very that's what i was funny yeah um what is this actor's name this is like a somewhat big cast so oh, is this um oh yeah this is mark evan jackson i think yes that's right um so he yeah so he um you know asks why she waited until her third trimester to come in to see the doctor. And she shares that she was hoping that it would just take care of itself, you know, clearly like still feeling very ambivalent about the pregnancy and about the idea of becoming a mother. Um, and then he asks her if she has anyone to rely on, like a family member, her mother. And she says that she has a dog and a neighbor that she sort of knows. Um, and he says, oh, okay. He's like, well, that's great. You've got a dog and a neighbor you sort of know. So you're all set. Um, but he he encourages her to like, to, you know, after she's, after things have settled down, after she has the baby, to come and row with him. In one year, he even writes her a prescription boathouse one year. Um, so this is definitely like a seed that's being planted that, you know, she's developed this rowing, like she's developed this rowing hobby and, you know, he seems to know that this is like important for her and he encourages her to come to the boathouse and row with him once she's ready for it. Yeah, this was sweet and all, but I wanted him to do like anything 
helpful for her. Like, I don't know. He's like, hey, do you have anybody? And she's like, no. Uh, And he's like, okay, well, you know, in a year from now when you won't be busy or anything, you know, you definitely won't have like a infant still by yourself. Right. Uh, You know, come, come hang out. Let's have a good time. Like, what? What are you doing, sir? Um, He was, he is the least problematic. Right. I was happy at all the things he didn't do. Um, And... (laughs) But boy, the bar is in nothing. The bar is in hell. The bar (laughs) is in hell. Um, Yes, he is least problematic man in this episode. So congratulations. Uh, Congratulations, doctor. What's this character's name? Um, Dr. Leland Mason. Great job. Um, Yeah, I I, I like that he was like kind of nonjudgmental, though. And it also felt like he sort of acknowledged that like, she wasn't going to accept very much, but maybe this was something that she might accept. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him more credit. But anyway, this is like the extent of her prenatal care. Um, and so this is what we see here in her third trimester. Um, back at work, though, uh, we have people being the most problematic um, because Elizabeth is getting fired as a... Uh, Donati says, because you are with child. Um, she asks her, her, uh, her, her current boss, the old, uh, the old guy, Mr. Astor, if her correspondence is slowed and it hasn't, she makes a lot, I thought of like really kind of funny comments here. She says that she's not contagious. <laughs> Like other people would catch pregnancy from her. Um, and Donati gets offended. He says, are you explaining pregnancy to me? Who do you think you are? And Elizabeth says, a woman, which I really loved. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Protection it, against uh, protection for pre- for pregnancy only became legal in the U.S. in 1978. So like it was perfectly legal to fire someone for yeah. being pregnant. It's really wild. Like Donati says, you know, you're the woman, you're the one who got knocked up when asked if like they would fire a man for, uh, for impregnating somebody. Um, she says there's no rules for this. And she read the employee handbook from cover to cover. And I believe that she did. Um, so yeah. like, I loved how fiercely she stands up for herself here. And it's like, you know, we see her, facing unfair retribution for being sexually assaulted. Uh, Last episode, we see her like standing up for herself, facing unfair retribution for being pregnant. Um, Donati in a really like disgusting turn tells her that Evans would be ashamed of her. And she says like, no, he would not. Uh, and so we know that in that moment, and we, so good. He, I was like, yeah. so good. And we know that he wouldn't be ashamed of her. Um, so yeah, so this is like she's getting fired. I don't, we don't know. I don't think we know if she's going to win this one yet. Um, but this is where we leave that, that she's in this precarious position at work. Um, in the neighborhood, Elizabeth and Harriet meet in the street. They were both going over to each other's houses. Elizabeth was going to borrow an axe because the hammer is limiting. <laughs> Um, well, Harriet was coming over to share the article about the city council hearing. Um, and Harriet feels like Calvin helped this happen because of the circumstances that brought her to the LA times. Um, Elizabeth 
doesn't understand, you know, what Harriet's driving at. Um, Harriet says she felt him in the room. These are clearly like two very different women who are approaching their grief in very different ways who mm -hmm. are, you know, who, who, who even who deal with like, it's neat because they're both facing adversity and they're both facing the injustices of a system and having to sort of be their own advocates in the absence of anyone else. Um, and they're doing and they're doing it differently. And I think it's going to be really beautiful to see them rely more on each other because they both have had to do a lot of this alone. Um, and, you know, Harriet tells Elizabeth eventually whatever you're trying not to feel, you're going to have to let yourself feel it at some point. Um, and that brings Elizabeth back to the box of Calvin's things. Um, and she goes through it. She sees chicken recipes, which is really sweet. He sees a mm -hmm. note he wrote apologizing to her. Um, she smells his lab coat. Um, and in the pocket of the lab coat, of course, she finds a wedding ring or engagement ring or whatever it is. But um, it's uh, and that's when 630 gets up and goes to her. And they have like the first moment, I think, where she sort of acknowledges 630, the dog, who's the narrator of this episode, um, <laughs> for, for a really important reason. And um, and then she takes him and they go and takes him for a walk, like they go on a night walk. Um, and again, it's like, it's like, I kept on thinking maybe we were done with the dog narrating, but 630 says, what can you say to someone who's lost everything? That's the beauty of running. When you can't move forward, your purpose is just being there, putting one foot in front of the other. We see Elizabeth break into a jog, one foot, one foot, and then sure enough, you'll be home, says the dog. And it ends with Elizabeth doing the thing that she never thought she would do, which is go jogging for exercise. I mean, the woman is very into cardio. We're getting that message yeah. loud and clear. Mm -hmm. um, I like, even if you needed this bit at the end of this, like you needed to, you know, spell it out for us. And, and, and the I would get it. I, I, I would get it. I would get it. Yeah. I would but get it. Again, sometimes you and I, what? Melissa, we are exceptionally smart people, though. We just <laughs> I, I we believe our it. listeners also <laughs> would get it. But I'm going to say like, OK, occasionally I watch TV and I complain about not having my hand held enough mm -hmm. through television. Sometimes I mm -hmm. like to have it spilled out. Fine. Do you know who else? Or your paw held? Do you want your paw held? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But you know who could have done this voiceover? Calvin. It could have been Calvin's mm -hmm. voice. We didn't need the dog. We could have got him. The Calvin's dog is voice. quoting Calvin. It could have oh just been Calvin's been voice. Calvin. Mm. It would have been fine. It would have been exactly the same. I don't like it. I don't like it. It was it was a bad choice. It was a bad choice. I don't like it. I think it was a good. <laughs> I think it was otherwise a good episode. I think it could have been a great I do too. episode. Yeah, um, but it was they, not a great they, episode. <laughs> They gave us something to talk about. Um, I have a few other notes from official lessons in chemistry, chemistry correspondent, Bill the Chemist. I love how many times I get to say chemistry when I when I say that. Um, 
when the two science villains who I think are, uh, <laughs> I think that's how he's referring to Donati and Alfred. And I don't think Alfred is a science villain. Maybe he's a science like accomplice. He's okay. Um, but when they say, let's start here, they're pointing to what's known as a Strecker synthesis. This is a to this is totally legit to what Zotin and Evans were doing as it's a way to make amino acids from carbonyls, amines, and cyanide. This is a very popular reaction to this day because it allows chemists to synthesize unnatural amino acids, and there have been many advances in making this reaction asymmetric. Obviously, making amino acids would be right in line with the origin of life research they were conducting. That's cool. And then um, Bill also wanted me to give some flowers to Eric Jacobson with regard to Strecker synthesis because Jacobson developed an organocatalytic variant in the 90s. And he developed a lot of asymmetric variants of the Strecker synthesis using chiral shift bases, I believe. So shout out to Eric Jacobson, who is not a woman, though, Melissa. No, not a woman. But I do, yeah. yeah. Chiral is definitely a word that I used to know what it meant. So cool. This sounds like real <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> That's what we go to Bill for, real chemistry. So do we have a woman in science for this week, Melissa? We do. Uh, first of all, it was kind of important to us to make we sure have a dog that... in science do we have any dogs in science should we add that i mean whatever pavlov's dog's name yeah. was i guess yeah, maybe <laughs> there was also a dog that went to space i don't think we yeah. want to talk about that dog though that's a sad dog we've got we've had enough dog talk okay women in science yeah um but yeah we wanted to make sure first of all uh that we're not just shouting out white women in science so uh we were, I was also specifically looking, uh, you know, we've been pretty hard into the basic science. So I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, go a little more into uh, maybe Amanda's area. And so we came up, um, Mamie Phipps Clark is a social psychologist. Uh, she's known for the famous doll experiment. Uh, and she studied the impact of racial segregation on preschool children and did vital research for the trial of Brown versus Board of Education that established the racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. Uh, she was also the first black woman to receive a degree from Columbia University. Uh, so, yeah, Mamie Phipps Clark uh, seems very cool. And I was uh, looking up this like doll experiment. Mm -hmm. First of all, are you familiar with this at all as a psychologist yourself? Yeah, well, this this is like the the racial doll preference experiment. Yeah. Yes. So I am familiar with it, but please do talk about it because I you would have researched it more recently. Yeah. So it was looking at uh, it was part of her master's thesis and work on self identification in nursery school children. Uh, basically, looking at uh, she ended up. Uh, she opted not to publish her thesis because she thought it was exploitative to publish with a professor. Uh, apparently there's some whole, uh, like many issues still going on, uh, similar to stuff we've talked about before. Um, basically, uh, the, 
there were four dolls identical in all ways except color, uh, children aged three to seven. Uh, and then they asked questions to identify racial perception and preference. Show me the doll that you like best or that you'd like to play with. Mm -hmm. Show me the doll that's the nice doll. Show me the doll that looks bad. Give me the doll that looks like a white child. Uh, give me the doll that looks like you. Uh, and so the experiment revealed a preference for the white doll for all the questions and your attributed positive attributes to the white dolls, uh, concluding that prejudice and discrimination and segregation caused black children to develop a sense of inferiority and self-hatred. So the fact that this preference was seen in black children as well as in white children mm -hmm. uh, and concluded that if society says it is better to be white, not only white people, um, but also black people come to believe it, uh, a child may try to escape the trap of inferior inferiority by denying the fact of his own race uh, and basically led to kind of further experiments that they repeated in hundreds of children because again replication they replicated being, uh, it yeah the name of the game from different parts of this country mm -hmm. uh where schools were segregated and they found the same results um they also looked at um giving like an outline of a doll color that children could color in themselves and many of the black children still colored in the doll like kind of white and yellow mm. Uh, and basically, yeah, a lot of conclusions around uh, demonstrating that segregation in school affected children negatively. Um, and yeah, it was very interesting and was very uh, foundational for kind of the eventual um, legal work that resulted in uh, segregation being found to be unconstitutional. Yeah. So, but she was very cool. Uh, very and she received cool. a humanitarianism award for her work uh, from the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. Uh, and yeah, seems like a pretty cool lady. So I was very excited to learn more about her when I was like, I bet you there are some cool people that I don't know about that I want to find out about. So that was the name of the game here. Yeah. Um, great. Well, awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Melissa. I love how that we are doing that that segment and that we're highlighting all of these kind of broader issues for careers in science and women in those careers. Um, so great. Um, where can people keep up with you, a woman in science and in podcasting? Um, what else are you have going on, Melissa? Yeah, fair enough. So first of all, keep sending us your ideas um, yes. for women in STEM. Also, um, you know, gladly take your um, we, we I will very happily broaden this category to people who are marginalized by gender in science. If we want to mm -hmm. shout out some, you know, non-binary and trans scientists also mm -hmm. could be very cool. So uh, keep the recommendations coming. I know we've got a couple already that we'll be shouting out in the upcoming podcast uh, but more are always welcome and otherwise you can find me uh, Melissa W28 on Twitter Melissa Woodward 28 on other social media I am currently podcasting about Goosebumps uh, which is a really great time podcasting about Doctor Who which has been really fun I was on the Wheel of Time wrap up I was also on one indescribable podcast they're covering Girls 5 Eva right now and so we talked about the second episode of that uh, very silly show Otherwise, uh, one of the things that I'm most excited to shout out, Rich and I are talking Dimension 20 right now. So if you're at all into Dungeons and Dragons or just like comedy improv, because it's all of the like college humor cast. So a lot of very recognizable fa faces from those videos. Um, we are talking about that and their season currently happening called Burroughs End. And I think we've, we're starting to kind of uncover some of the mystery. So I'm very excited to talk to Rich this week about that. And 
yeah, I think that's it. There's, uh, it feels like there's a lot going on, but I have like gone through my mess of craziness <laughs> and, and come out the other side to just get to do fun podcasts like this. So yeah. What about you, Amanda? Awesome. Um, well, you can keep up with everything I'm doing on Twitter where I'm at Dr. Amanda R. That's D-R, Amanda R. And I am bringing weekly coverage of the entertainment strike still ongoing in Hollywood. Um, SAG-AFTRA is still on strike. Actually, on the eve of this podcast recording, uh, they are set to resume negotiations on Tuesday. But I just brought... Uh, I just... Uh, published a great interview with Molly Schock, who is a Emmy-nominated reality TV editor and got her perspective on the world of unscripted television. Really, really interesting conversation there. I have some more great podcasts lined up for you on Strike Up the Conversation, where I am also giving updates on the status of the negotiations with the AMPTP. Um, and that's all I have going on right now, but do stay posted because there's a couple other things in the works. Yay. Yeah. And of course, more lessons in chemistry. Um, we're going to be bringing you more weekly coverage throughout this series. So keep us, uh, stay tuned. So subscribe and you won't miss anything that we're doing. Take care. Bye-bye. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to US News & World Report, we're the 25th top paying career. Make an impact as a fact seeker and a truth teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.